0: We'd like to welcome you to another podcast from Hoheimer Wealth Management, the Worth Knowing More podcast. We're very excited today to have with us the managing partner, David Hoheimer, and our special guest today, Gregory Kofsky from IBA, the International Business Associates. So welcome, gentlemen. Glad to have you here today.
1: Oh, hey, glad to be here. You know, I've known Greg over two decades. That's true. Yeah, it's good. Good to see you, bud. Good to see you. How'd you guys originally meet? Uh, he sold the business for me. Oh, well I that it.
0: wasn't the coffee shop, was it? It was the coffee shop. Serious?
1: The Seattle's best coffee shop up there at the Northgate Transfer Center.
0: That was
2: correct. You had a very strategically placed coffee shop right at the park and ride where people caught The buses. I bet you wish you had a chain going in with the new light rail system. Oh, man. Can you get that done?
1: (laughs) (laughs) If you can get that done, I'll be the new head barista at the HWM coffee shop. That's
0: awesome. Well, Gregory, why don't you go ahead and just tell our listeners a little bit about the company and what you've been involved with here the last few years and even bringing us up to steam right here now currently.
2: Sure. Happy to answer any questions. IBA, we are the oldest business brokerage firm in the Pacific Northwest. We've been in business since 1975. I'm the second owner of the firm. I joined the company in 1994 and purchased it from the founder in 2000, when he was ready to retire. Bill Osofsky was a great mentor to me. IBA has offices in Oregon, Washington, and Alaska. We're a sell side representation company, meaning all our focus is on on the ownership side of the business. And one of the things that makes us unique in the marketplace is we're 100% paid on performance. So we're very selective on our projects, but our clients do not pay us unless we perform and deliver a deal that they find satisfactory.
0: How has Business changed since 1994, bringing us up to 2021. Uh,
2: well, the biggest evolution has been the internet and technology. It's you know I'm an old style salesperson. I love meeting people face to face. I love engaging on the phone. And it's you now walk into the office in the morning and you have a hundred plus emails, and everyone wants to respond engaged by text and email and social media and I would just rather sit in a conference room and problem solve and come out with a
0: positive solution for everyone. That's good stuff. Well, the first thing we want to jump into is we've been dealing with this crazy pandemic for the last couple of years. How has that affected what you guys do and some of the obstacles business owners have had to deal with and some of the challenges for you in the last couple of years?
2: Certainly. Well, IBA, we were early in the pandemic, declared an essential business. So we worked throughout the pandemic. We are blessed that we, our demographic that we work with is risk-acceptant and very resilient. Nice. I mean, people who own businesses or want to own businesses, they're not afraid to go out in the storm and venture out in find a solution to a problem. And so we were blessed that our demographic came back strong and problem solved. I mean, I'll give you an example. One of the companies I recently sold, Washington Generators, is a company that sells Kohler and Generac generators as backup auxiliary power. Their recipe for success, partly beyond just great entrepreneurs, Eric and Michelle Johnson, who ran the company, was rather than just-in-time inventory, they had purchased many generators and had them in their warehouse so they could satisfy demand. They took off in a, as a company during the pandemic because the traditional model with a lot of HVAC companies that also sold generators was they would do an upsell and then order the generator after they completed the sale well in the pandemic it could take six months to get a generator where this company that had a million dollar line of credit and a backlog of many generators in their warehouse plus orders in place to replace the ones they sold that could take three, six months for delivery because they had the stock to sell, thrived. And we found that with many companies that the ones who went against the trend of just-in-time inventory thrived because whether you're a manufacturer or retail distribution company, you had the ability to serve your clients. I mean, I'd be interested in hearing from David talking about publicly traded companies, which we deal with privately held companies, but it advances the public. The ones that are manufacturers in the United States, how did they do in the pandemic versus companies that were dependent on overseas products?
1: Good segue, Greg. I told you I like this guy. It was smooth, it was smooth. Yeah, Greg runs a really good shop. As a quick commercial, we always like to recommend folks when they call, when when I talk to clients of Humber Wealth Management or just in general, people that are always saying, hey, do you have an idea of a business broker or someone to represent me selling my business? Greg is on the top of my list. And I think it's because they're this consummate professionals and it's pay, pay, you know, performance pay. They don't perform, they don't get paid. And so I love working with folks that have an incentive to make you as much money as they can because they get a piece of it. So that's that commercial. Uh, If
2: you're looking for a business broker, call Greg at IBA. Thank you. And I have a team of another thing about IBA is we, are the largest business brokerage firm in the Northwest and have a double-digit team of brokers that are experts in different industries. So you're not just getting a generalist. If you want to sell a restaurant, Oliver on my team is active in the Washington Hospitality Association.
0: You got experts in every field?
2: in, In pretty much every, manufacturing Construction, cannabis, quite a spectrum. Nice. Good, good. And so, you know, during the pandemic, uh, what we noticed
1: was all publicly traded companies got hit early on because no one really knew what was happening. We knew that business stopped as we know it. People stayed home and all of a sudden things just stopped. However, for the companies that were able to kind of become remote work locations, they exploded. And then as folks realized that not only work remote was so important, but also the supply chain started having kinks because not only in the USA did folks get mandated to stay home, but globally. In China, they were welding the doors shut. In New Zealand and Australia, we we see the riots going on. In, In Mexico, Canada, everybody kind of sent their folks home, which we kind of saw that starting to trickle in. And I mean, early on in the pandemic, you saw toilet paper of all things having a run on. Remember that? Yeah, remember. How people were crazy because it was like, and, and we looked at it and said, come on, just-in-time inventory. That's an American icon way of doing business. And now we're two years into this pandemic and we see still massive disruption. So big HVAC companies like Carrier, Genrac, had incredible—their stocks had incredible runs because business really boomed for them. Because domestically, they had the material. They can source the deals and get them done. And what you really saw and what you're seeing in today's marketplace is companies that are able to source domestically uh, and control their supplies domestically are really winning the battle. So it's it's kind of bringing home, things are coming back home to uh, American-made, American-built. It's kind of a nice feeling, like this potentially could be a start of a new manufacturing kind of renaissance period for U.S. folks that are willing to take risk and say we're going to start building some essential things in America. And
2: I think you're seeing emergence of a new business model, which we are beginning to see, which is the direct-to-consumer manufacturing in the public sector. You saw it with Peloton where they were delivering their products right to people's doors, and we see it in smaller companies. I'm working right now with a textile manufacturer that's scheduled to close at the end of December where they are at a level of revenue that they've never been because people are home and shopping online and not going to Walmart or Target to buy product. They're letting it be delivered directly to their house. And so I think that the marriage of e-commerce and manufacturing is something that came out of the pandemic that is gonna remain, and it, it's wonderful for American companies. Oh
1: yeah, I agree. And there's something that we can't forget. Right? We'd be remiss not to say the famous word Amazon, yeah. right? They have rechanged. They changed the way business works. I mean, if you want it now, you press that button, that easy button, and they can have it here in two two hours. So, Got me in trouble many times. Correct. Uh-huh. So Amazon has reshaped the way businesses have to deal with consumers, which is great because they're a logistic powerhouse and we want, as consumers, the ability to say, I want to go online, I want to do my research, I want to do it when I want to do it and when I'm ready to buy it, I want to press the button and have it delivered now. And, and that's a powerful new learned behavior from the consumer. It's pretty impressive.
0: So in your line and what you've been doing for the last couple of years, is there a sector that's doing better than all the rest that you have found
2: Different sectors rise and fall. I would say one sector that has done very well the last two years is the home improvement construction sector. Yeah. So people have put a lot of dollars into their home. For example, we just sold a company called Patio Cover People. where are building sunrooms off of the back of your houses and beautiful rooms with, you know, built-in columns, greenhouse type enclosures that, you know, people have been spending more time at home. They
0: sure have. And
2: so they've been enhancing I know a hot tub dealership I sold. If you want to buy a new hot tub right now, you're waiting like six months for delivery. Wow. I mean,
1: it's- well, if you know somebody that's looking for a hot tub, I I have one. <laughs> I have one at my beach house that has been for sale for years. <laughs> so, so I got a hot tub
0: for sale. He wants somebody wants to come and pick it up. Oh, that's good to know. That's nice. you know. So we're sliding into the comedy portion of the interview <laughs> no, right now. Is that no, what we're doing?
1: No, I'm saying I, I'll make a good deal. <laughs> so, someone wants this hot nice. tub. I've been trying to get rid of it for five years. Nice. So, uh, but I agree. Supply chains are causing issues. But you know what? You know, all jokes aside, think about this. You're talking to me about you can't find hot tubs. And for folks like me that want to reuse or repurpose hot tubs, it's a great market to do so. I mean, that's why the used car market is so hot right that's now. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, two years ago, I was thinking about selling my my car and they offered me 18 grand. And this year I sold my car because they offered me 32 grand. The only thing different over the 12 month period was the car went from 130,000 to 150,000, right? But there are very few cars on lots right now. And so it's kind of good. It's good for the economy. It's good to repurpose things. It's actually been kind of refreshing to have this tightness in the supply chain.
2: Oh, I, I think it's, it's good. Business evolves and entrepreneurs adapt and, you know, our worlds are connected in that the companies we work with are more agile and they're more experimental than the publicly traded companies, but they emulate. And I'd like to get your opinion. One of the trends we're seeing for 2022, everyone's talking about inflation. And one of the reasons we have inflation right now is too many dollars chasing too few goods, basic economics. But on the other side, people have been chasing products rather than services. So the opportunity I see in 2022 with the pandemic receding is service sector companies, I think, are going to do very well in 22 and 23 Families that deferred going to Disneyland the last two years, that's a rite of passage for all kids. Disney's going to, in my opinion, do very well because now you have a group of seven-year-old girls who never got to go see their princesses who will go – As soon as they can.
0: Well, some of us 62-year-olds are dying to get to the Galaxy's Edge thing, too. So, you know, don't limit it to just the little kids.
2: So do you think the service sector is poised to do well? Yeah,
1: I think. We call it the reopening trade. And I think you're already starting to see signs of the reopening trade. I mean, I was just in Las Vegas at a Gonzaga basketball game a month ago, and there was no seat. There to purchase. I mean, I'm glad I have a good friend that had seats, but uh, hotels were completely booked out. Uh, cab lines were 60 minutes. Restaurants at hotels like the Wynn, were sold out. couldn't even get Couldn't even get a reservation. To your point, the service sector is hot. It's booming, and I love it. And for the folks that were nervous, they're starting to shake off the cobwebs and. I won't give away because it's it's private information, but I have a wonderful employee who's been a really good friend for a long time that after they got their va- vaccine shot and their booster shot, they took a two-week trip on a cruise to international waters. We're sure glad you're not <laughs> naming names. Name, they, 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 they were like, we're out of here. I mean, two days after the vaccine, they were like, we booked something and... 15 days later, they're in international waters enjoying themselves. So that tells me that there's a pent up demand to go back out there and start experiencing the world. And so, not only service sector, but I think experiences are going to be a huge,
2: huge, huge, huge thing for the next five years. Nobody nobody wants to get locked up again. No, I agree. And it's, you know, we're seeing it in other sectors like people who have pushed off weddings now that they can have the multi-generational event that they enjoyed and dreamed of, they can do that. And so you're right. There are so many experiential service businesses are going to have high demands. And that's where I think that's one thing that I believe will help mitigate inflation is that as people allocate their dollars back towards services you will have more goods on the shelf.
0: Yeah, well, you mentioned inflation, so I'm gonna ask both of you this question also. Do you see the political climate have any effect on what you do and what we do? Looking forward to you know, possibly even the next election, what we're looking for, the good and the bad, the ugly of what the possibilities are, how we as a firm will be affected, how you could possibly be affected with acquisitions and mergers, what's coming up here in the next few years? Oh, man, you like to just
1: be a lightning rod. Light it up, baby. You like to just be a lightning rod. Well, after 30 years in in, in the investment world, clearly I have an opinion on one side or the other. But the most important thing I've learned over 30 years is it's never what you think. So let's give you a case in point. President Biden came into office, and you heard just a crazy reckoning screaming voices saying that the world was coming to an end and it's going to be bad and he's going to print money. And he did print money and it's not bad. None of us died. And the stock market is one of the best stock markets we've had in years and decades, right? And so... What I do know is the market, the public markets, are just really sophisticated private markets, and they see through a lot of this, right? So what they saw was more stimulus, more money, lower interest rates, a better economic climate, a better environment to make more money, and that's really what the markets are about. That's what business is about. So I'm not quite sure what's going to happen politically. I mean, the fabric of America is so taut right now. Like, I don't think we can handle much more stress before it starts ripping, right? So I would like to just have a 10-year period where – we just ease up on the political fabric of America, and let's just get back to basics of let's you know build things, live things, enjoy communities, little league, apple pie. Let's just <laughs> let's just stop the yelling and go back to actually doing what we do best That's in good. America is build. That's good, right? Let's start building. Let's go back to having fun and enjoying one another. But I don't think any political climate's going to be long-lasting. I don't think it impacts the markets
0: long-term. Nice. Gregory, take a crack at that one.
2: Well, I would say my demographic, entrepreneurs are problem solvers. They take advantage of opportunities. So any situation creates an opportunity. People make judgment calls. So I would say one thing that's driven activity this year is fear of tax change. We're in the state of Washington. There's talk of a state capital gains tax. I personally think it's not constitutional and it will ultimately be thrown out. But we have seen people who are not risk-acceptant take action. And it's ranged from entrepreneurs who wanted to sell their companies this year with a known tax environment to the head of Microsoft, who sold half of his stock. If it ends up being declared unconstitutional, some people may have been chicken little and regret their positions because I hold stock in Microsoft and I didn't sell yeah. because I believe it's a solid company with a bright future. The top of the pyramid made a different decision. You know, each of us assess information and make decisions In our best interest it's always gonna change we talk a lot about the capital gains tax rate the reality is it's been between 15 and 35 percent over the last 50 years it's at 23.8 percent federally if it goes to 28.8 it's still in the same range it's just a little bit deeper in the pool
1: Business will always adjust to the tax climate. I'm not one of those folks that believes everyone's going to make the right decision or wrong decision based on taxes. But there's so many variables into making decisions like the head of Microsoft, right? It's a publicly traded company. He has windows. He has to sell stock. So he makes a judgment. Do I sell stock now? If I don't, I have to miss this window, and then I have to do it another time. So it's all a judgment call. Right at the end of the day, he's making the best decision he thinks for himself. But he still has half his his net worth built into this stock. So he he made a decision to sell part of his position, and now he's going to kind of hedge his bet uh, per his comments in the paper and see what happens next year. But even if they raise you know uh, an additional seven percent in the state of Washington as a as an income tax, and I agree, I, I think it's going to be ruled. Co- Uh, not constitutional, you still got to make decisions
2: in the current climate. And one thing I would stress, and, you know, it's one thing that's brought us together as firms, is both firms emphasize knowledge, experience, and making sound decisions from that framework. I can tell you, and David doesn't even know this, I brought... David in to meet with the owner of a company who's built a wonderful company in the transportation sector. The party went to the edge of the pool and thought about selling his company. At the end of the day, he decided there was too much upside with the business model and has decided to not sell, even though we generated offers and opportunities For them to sell, pulled back, and we always tell our clients, whether you want to sell in 21, 22, or 25, it doesn't matter to us. We're going to be here, and we want you to make decisions from a foundation of knowledge. And part of what we were doing with this individual and where David met with him at our office was deciding, based on the value of my company that I can get in the market— based on my needs going forward, based on the needs of my daughter and her family pans and my legacy issues, what do I want to do? And so collaboratively, we gave the entrepreneur a set of knowledge. He made a decision. For a period of time, he said, let's go forward and sell the company. And then he was getting a large contract and he said – you know, if I bring this into the nest, run it another year, I might be able to get 20% more. I'm willing to wait another year. Those sort of decisions are what we work on
0: with clients. Well, that's a good segue because I want David to take a crack at this one first. Is So what does a collaboration between Hoheimer Wealth Management and IBA look like for all of our listeners and especially our clients who might be interested in possibly selling their business? How does it work, the relationship between our two firms?
1: Wonderful question. So remember, we're a fiduciary, right? We're an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. We manage over a billion dollars for our clients, and we have a fiduciary obligation to our clients. So when we collaborate with any of our uh, partner firms, the firms that we do business with in a sense of recommend them, we're doing it with in, with the concept in mind that we're giving the client another opportunity a very transparent uh, opportunity to look at another professional service provider. We are not getting compensated from Greg uh, and IBA. We're not getting compensated when we recommend another company. We're simply bringing in a resource, bringing in a knowledgeable partner that we feel comfortable, that we respect, that's going to treat our clients fairly. And once again, we believe clients should always have more than one opinion, right? Nobody has a, has a lock on good ideas or professional services. So if clients, and many of our clients own private small businesses or medium-sized businesses, a lot of them don't know where to go. I mean, you'd be amazed that folks that have been running a business 20, 30, 40 years, and I was telling Greg before this uh, this podcast that in 30 years of doing this, I've never seen such a prolific environment of MA activity. I mean, I, I've never seen it. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm blown away. I mean, from FedEx routes to uh, electric motors to online. So, I mean, I've never seen so many businesses go up for sale, and so much money changing hands. I mean, it's been pretty incredible. And when a client says to me, I'm thinking about selling my business after 30 years, you got to remember, or 20 years, or 15 years, or 10 years, and Greg could probably talk about this, many of the times they don't know where to go to. They were running a business, whether it's a dry cleaner, whether it's some FedEx routes, whether it's uh, building uh, uh, transmissions. They were working. They were building something. They were providing services. They weren't out looking at the marketplace. They weren't getting comps. They don't know what they... they, Most people that own small businesses run them, operate them, live them. So when they come and say, okay, I'm ready to cash in some chips for whatever reason, I'm getting older, I want to buy a house in Florida, I want to take care of my wife who's ill, I want... there's a whole host of reasons why somebody's going to say I'm taking chips off the table. Uh, but when they decide to do that, we at Hoheimer Wealth Management want to be a resource. And when they say, David, our biggest asset is this company, what should I do? What we don't want to do is say, I don't know. Right. So collaboration with IBA is a collaboration where 20 plus years ago, I said, I have a coffee, (laughs) I have a middle of Northgate, I have this coffee stand. My partner just retired and went to California. I got some college kids eating me out of house at home on my business, but it's a great business. It's generating money. I love it, but at the same time, I got four little kids and a wife at home and I got my own book of business that I'm trying to build at a firm that is relatively new in the industry, right? So I leaned on professionals.
0: Well, that's a good spot right there for Greg. Just walk us through what IBA does with a prospect that wants to talk about selling their business.
1: Wait, I just want to make sure I understand this. So you're saying, like, how to sell a business for dummies? Is that, is <laughs> that,
0: is that, is that, is that what you want,
1: Greg? Yeah. Okay, Greg, for dummies, how to sell a business, right? How do we do this?
0: How Our about- listeners are way too sophisticated <laughs> yeah. to get one of those yellow and black books. We don't yeah. need any of that okay. stuff going on. But okay. you would like to walk through the process just because some people might be just considering it.
2: Sure. Happy to answer the question. It's a fairly straightforward process. And again, we don't get paid unless we perform. So there's no charge to someone for engaging with IBA. So the first thing I'll say is we only represent sellers at IBA. The second thing is the first step is we are going to give a professional opinion of the value of the company. And this process serves two purposes. On one side, for the business owner, it allows them to assess our knowledge, experience, ability, customer service, and decide, is this someone we want to work with? Because in many cases, you're selling the most valuable asset in your life. Also something that you're very connected with you know, your employees, I know this is true with David and it's true with me. Our employees, our people who work with us, are family. So unlike almost anything else, you're putting their lives in the hands of the transition. So you want to pick the right party. So we evaluate it. For us, we're deciding, is this a project we want? Is this a person we can work with? Are they realistic on value? Because we don't get paid unless it sells. So for our business model to work, we need to take it to market. And we generally sell companies at a market value to a premium value. So we're very good at sales. But we both need to decide, do we want to go forward? Once we do that, using tools to maintain confidentiality to make sure – The sale of the business doesn't get in the public domain where employees, customers, suppliers learn it's for sale. We then begin to create a marketplace. Our goal is to create a competitive marketplace because that has a positive influence on value. More people competing for the same product, be it a company, drives value up. We just sold a three-location chain of Coin Laundries, had four offers on that business, and our client got to pick the party that offered the best price and terms. So more importantly, the person they felt best to take the helm of the company. So once we do that, we have the parties meet. We want the buyer to go in with open eyes in an environment of full disclosure so they negotiate in good faith from position and knowledge. And we'll negotiate a variety of terms, the business terms of the sale, which start with price and financial terms. But we're also talking transition period. How long is the seller going to stay? Are they going to stay as an employee, a consultant, or for free for a period of time? We're going to talk about non-competition agreements. The buyer wants a safe harbor to operate the company Post-sale, without the business owner going across the street and starting competition and stealing key employees. So we got to deal with that issue. Tax allocation, because how the deal is structured
0: can— Maybe we do need to get one of those yellow and black books out. <laughs> oh, my, oh, my, it's really—it's it's, it's quite a process. It is.
2: But yeah. how the deal is structured, there could be a 10 to 20% range in tax rates. And so working with them, their CPA, their wealth advisor, the net dollars of the deal are more important than the gross dollars. And so making sure it's a thoughtful process. We will reach agreement on the business terms of the sale in a letter of intent. And then we are going to bring in the attorneys, traditionally, to flesh out the deal and deal with liability issues. What happens if the seller hasn't paid their taxes and an audit comes out? What happens if, heaven forbid, there's an issue of product liability where someone chokes on a product or there was a sexual harassment issue on staff all those issues have to be dealt with in the legal documents. You don't want a purchase and sale for dummies. Yeah. You want to make sure all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed. And in an overwhelming majority of our deal, that purchase and sale, when the deal's done, goes into a safe, safety deposit box, and no one will ever look at it again. But if there is an issue, you want to make sure... And uh, the things are addressed in detail. There's a roadmap on how do we resolve this issue.
0: Yeah, is there a time frame on beginning to end how long a deal like this might take to to start and finish?
2: There is. I would say we are better than the industry averages. Traditionally, we sell companies in three to nine months from when they went to market. We actually offer the shortest term, listing agreement in the industry, to the best of my knowledge, in that our listing agreement's only for six months. So right in the middle of that range. The reason we do that, if we haven't sold it in six months, we want to have a conversation with our client. In many cases, we'll ask to continue working on the project and finish what we started. But there are situations where We've brought three offers to a client. The issue in the sale isn't the business, it's the owner. We may choose to say, you know, you didn't know, negotiate in good faith. We're not sure we want to be tied to you.
1: Let's talk about that a little bit, Greg. When, so what I know with business owners, some of the hardest parts of a sale – is one, the emotional aspect, but two, they have a very difficult time conceptualizing how they're going to replace their income. And so what I found to be really helpful with clients that are going through a a large transaction, and like you said, typically one of the largest assets they own, is being able to walk through with the client through planning, saying, by the way, once you sell, you have this pot of money, and this pot of money is going to produce this distribution, and this is how we're going to replace your income. And I find that having that conversation tends to ease a lot of the anxiety and stress that business owners typically have, because with a business owner, we have a business, right? And the business generates money, whether it's washing windows or fixing motors or delivering packages. And we're used to running a business and then getting a paycheck, Every two to three weeks and then at the end of the year taking a bonus and we know how it works. It's pretty, it's built in, it's, it's a routine. But trying to get business owners to get above the emotional aspect of selling something that's so near and dear to them and then on top of it trying to get them to focus that this is how we're going to replace your income has been kind of a winning recipe at the firm, at our firm, to help people ease into what I call that second chapter in their lives,
2: retirement. Have you seen that? I most certainly have. I mean, the Wealth Advisor plays a very important role. And I will start by saying many entrepreneurs have all their eggs in one basket. They're playing the game with the chips always all in. And it's amazed me, and you've probably seen this situation numerous times yourself, where they don't even understand the investment tools that exist. If we sell a business, let's say, for eight million and they pay their taxes, and let's say they net six million out of that, what a experienced, talented wealth advisor can do with that asset in terms of creating passive income without eroding capital. So that's one scenario, and I'm going to give one other, and then, David, I'm going to let you comment. I've also seen unique solutions by wealth advisors. I had a client who was selling a winery in Washington, one of the industries we work in. He got divorced. Unfortunately, marriages don't work out. I think 50% of them fail or such. Well, what he wanted to do with the sale was – He was tired of his ex-wife hounding on him for alimony payments. Really an interesting situation. What he did is working with a wealth advisor, bought an annuity that paid his alimony payment and used the time value of money to use this liquid asset to actually buy it at, you would probably comment, a, a value price with a... 25 year horizon on those alimony payments mm-hmm. you know using the transaction to take care of that so he his comment was if she has a problem she can call the annuity company i'm not involved anymore
1: Right. I love that. And once again, that's working with an experienced wealth advisor or firm that says, how do we create creative solutions for clients? But you got to have it. And and I, you know, I, I'm always amazed after 30 years in this business, there's many really successful business owners that don't even have wealth advisors because I like what you said Most of the time, they're playing with their chips on the table. So it's not that they don't want a wealth advisor. It's just that they didn't need one because for the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years, they've had their chips on the table, and they were never looking to take the chips off the table. And now, for some reason, some kind of change in lifestyle, they're like, holy cow, now I need some help. Now you know, outside of the traditional retirement plan, but a real wealth advisor that's going to do a financial plan, talk about cash flow distribution, look at uh, estate planning. they got to figure out like, okay, what are we going to do? I mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to get this big pot of money, whether it's 8 million, 10 million, 40 million. I, this is all I have. And I'm used to getting X. I'm not going to get X anymore because I just sold it. And so how do I do this? It's kind of an interesting, it, you'd be you'd be amazed at how many times I talk to really smart, successful people, and outside of the traditional retirement plan that they have, they don't have a go-to firm or financial planning or estate planning because they've just been in the trenches working. Have you noticed that?
2: I have, and I've also noticed something else where they need an adult wealth advisor that Previously, they problem solved by maybe having a wealth advisor out of their bank or they've had a wealth advisor who ha- was a shop in a strip mall near their house. Mm-hmm. And it's a different thing when you're putting a couple tens of thousands a year into an investment account and you like to play it for it yourself watching – Kramer or whoever, and want to do it. It's another thing when your life work is being turned into cash. You need it. Your annuity, which is truly a business, the cash flow, cash solves a lot of problems. If you're cash flowing 800000 a year and it's gone on year after year or so, you can replace a bad investment decision. You can't do that when you sell the cow. No,
1: you're right. I tend to say cash flow is like a perk. I mean, cash flows repair balance sheets. And so when you sell the operating business, you sell that perk, right? So you got to be very cautious uh, and you got to be mindful and thoughtful uh, when you have that, what I call golden
2: nugget, because if you lose the golden nugget, we got a problem. Exactly. And that's where skill sets are often you know, the thing we introduce is whether it's an attorney, a CPA, a wealth advisor, it's bringing people on the team for the client to make sure they're having best in class.
0: Yeah, it's good. I, listening to both of your stories here, it sounds like it's a match made in heaven, the way the two companies work together just getting the project done.
1: Well, you know, I was thinking about this because we've been at this a long time, pre two thousand, so. I'm going 30 years in this business. So I started in 91. You started in 94. We're not too far off on age or length in the business arena. In fact, I would say you have a lot more experience as the business owner because I only recently, three years ago, branched off and started Hoheimer Wealth Management. But it's it's amazing how our path has intertwined over the last two decades.
2: Oh, it most certainly has. And I... I would say the first chapter of your life, you learn. The next chapter of your life, you earn. And then hopefully past that, you serve in nonprofits and those sort of things. It's a philosophy I learned from Andy Hill, who was a state senator in the state of Washington, who was a wonderful man who left us too soon. But I would say the benefit of David and I as the patriarchs of our firm is See, the season benefit <laughs> is we're, we're really still in our prime. Mm-hmm. I have seen in our industry, people I very much re- respected and admired, looked up to who have been retiring in recent years, the baby boomer generation. I'm personally 54. How old are you? 51. The two of us— Whippersnappers. Well, we have at least another decade of serving in this world, but we have the battle scars. We have the experience having been there, done that. I've done over 300 deals personally. Firms done over 4,200 deals since 1975. So one thing you're buying, and I tell our clients this, you're buying— that experience.
1: Yeah. That institutional knowledge.
2: Exactly. And whether it's myself or, you know, other members of my team who, you know, I have a lawyer on my team. I have several MBAs. It's a talented group, just like at your firm. To me, the strength of a firm goes beyond the individual. You know, I want to jump in there. Yeah, well, I I, I
0: was just going to say, too, we push the team a theory here pretty hard.
1: You're right. I mean, and you know what? Really smart, successful people, business owners that you deal with, they know that, right? You don't, It it, it takes a firm to build what you're talking about and being able to offer a collaborative approach where, for instance, we just announced we're opening an office in the Tampa Bay Clearwater area. We just hired on. The CPA just just sold his firm, 51 years old. He's coming on as a director of financial planning. He's going to run all of our planning uh, because he has 25 years of actually handling uh, tax returns for very affluent folks. And he didn't want to do it anymore. In fact, he said, I want to do wealth management because I think I can make a difference and we can save more money and we can kind of plan strategies well in advance. So to your point, when people come to us, they're not getting David Hoimer. They're getting David Hoimer. They're getting Robert Ott. They're getting Matt. They're getting CPAs, lawyers. They're getting well-seasoned folks that only have their best interest at heart because we don't sell products, right? We're, we're in the service business of professional service. And so our clients really take heart when I say, you know what? I, I want to talk to Greg at IBA about this business, and you should call him. They know that we're not getting a kickback. They know we did our due diligence, and they know that we value the partner that we're talking to. So it's important to you, Greg, that you know that we value your business and your relationship, but also to our clients that are listening that we go above and beyond to vet anybody we're ever going to refer our clients
2: to because it's a reflection of who we are. I agree 100%. I mean, I always say a referral is a reflection of you, and the last thing you want to do is refer a valued client to someone and have them be disappointed. So there's risk exposure when I offer a referral, Mm -hmm. and the same thing for you. And I know you're not afraid of talent around you, nor am I. I mean, for example – an asset of IBA, I will mention, and you've both met him, Kurt Meyer, my VP of Business Development. Spent a little time on the golf course with Kurt.
0: Yeah, exactly. Was I like the, that guy. guy that guy
2: you said he had a little bit of a funny swing. No, oh,
0: he's a ringer. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about?
2: <laughs> but Kurt, you know, owned his own business brokerage firm, mm. and I had a friendship with him. And after he sold his firm, wrote out a non-compete. He joined my firm and I wasn't threatened to have another successful business owner on my team who pushes back on ideas or offers creative ideas that I haven't thought of. I think the best organizations seek superior talent. An analogy I often use is in business, an immature owner. Controls everything. They hold it tight in their hand. The best entrepreneurs, the best executives I've ever met, are the ones that delegate with confidence to talent. Good. Well, why are we start to wind and, this and, and, thing down? Wait,
0: stick with. Did that, you just so call you, me Robert? Uh,
2: Robbie. <laughs> All I'm
1: saying is. What he just said was a perk (laughs) because he's right. Professionals, successful business owners that create successful firms delegate and trust their folks to be good team members. And, And if you can trust the folks to be good team members, that's an incredible opportunity. I say amen
0: to that. So perk, let's as we winding this perk, thing down. Perk. You just had to go and get the word perk in there. I told him he yeah. could not use the word perk in this interview, and he j- he broke all the rules. Just leave us with one golden nugget apiece here today. After all is said and done, Gregory. Well, I would
2: first by offering that if you call Hoheimer Wealth Management and mention the word perk. <laughs> <laughs> the, first party, ugly. the first party that does that wins a Starbucks card. <laughs> Two Starbucks cards. Nice. <laughs> but I would just say I'm not saying you should use IBA or Hoheimer Wealth Management. What I'm saying is you should include both firms in your interview process. If we cannot convey why in terms of knowledge, experience, and ability – we're the best option. That's on us. And I know David holds the same view. All we say is to make a decision without including two of the most successful firms in the Puget Sound area just isn't prudent. Nice. David? Yeah, you know, what? I couldn't say it any
1: better. Um, I think everybody owes it to themselves to make sure they vet who they're working with from a professional service standpoint. And I don't think you can vet too many options initially, but once you get down to the vetting process and you're done, then I say let the firm that you're working with do their job, right? Don't micromanage them. So if you have IBA and two or three other firms and IBA wins out because of the the depth and breadth of what they can do, then you let them do their job. And then when they come back to you and give you feedback, you run with that. Same thing with Hoheimer Wealth Management, right? You, you Numerous times I hear clients call or we get referrals and we say, this is what we can do. This is how we're going to recommend. But it's vital now. After 30 years, I tell people, if you're going to go with what we're recommending at Hoheimer Wealth Management, then you're going to follow what we're doing because we're really not interested in getting graded for what the client's going to do. Right. So it's important that when you hire a professional service firm, whether it's selling a business or helping kind of
0: guide, manage your
1: financial assets, you you let the professionals do their job.
0: Nice. Well, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so very much. And you guys have done great. Thank you. Hey, Greg, good seeing you. Thank you, Gregory.
2: Cheers.